Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the story of Private First Class Melvin Brown. Brown was a combat engineer serving with Delta Company, part of the 8th Engineering Combat Battalion in the Korean War. The time we're going to talk about, the battle for which he'd be awarded the Medal of Honor, would take place in September of 1950, known as, well, it's larger than that. His actions are in September, but it's going to be the Battle of the Pusan Perimeter. And this is a, you know, a linchpin in the Korean War. And, and his specific actions, his story, I think ties in really well to that phase of the conflict, to be able to kind of tell the story of that phase, if you will. So to back it up a little bit, the Korean War kicked off in 1950, June of 1950, and it's that's barely five years since the end of the Second World War. So this crazy, global, catastrophic war that left tens of millions dead, and we don't even make it five years before another, you know, we'll say another conflict kicks off. As it's getting started, nobody knows how big this is going to be. Is this going to be kind of a local action that maybe peters out quickly, or is it going to be a flashpoint for a World War III? Remember, this is right as the United States and the Soviet Union are really forming their positions as you know the top two powers in the world. And in Korea, for the first time in terms of major conflict, you have a country, North Korea, North Korea backed by the Soviet Union and China and, and the you know communist-leaning countries, waging war against, the, against South Korea, a nation backed by the United States, the United Nations, Great Britain, and kind of Western democracies. So we've got this flashpoint, and what's unknown at the time and would, would loom like a dark cloud over, over planners is what will it take for this to escalate into full-scale global war? How about nuclear war? That's unknown throughout this conflict. And it's it adds an interesting twist throughout because it's it's hard to grasp. And, and General Douglas MacArthur, who's leading American forces and UN forces for part of it, is an interesting personality in this conflict because he he is absolutely still looking at this through a very World War II type mindset where the use of nuclear weapons is going to be, it's a part of warfare now. We're going to use them. But then you have a lot of other political and military leaders that are saying, maybe this isn't, you know, are we going down a rabbit hole if we jump to the use of those weapon systems so early? But nonetheless, that's one of the major concerns in the Korean War is that we're going to end up with not a South Korea, North Korea war, or even a United Nations versus North Korean war. But we're going to end up with the United States versus Soviet Union war versus China war, which could, could, could today be called World War III, right? So after North Korea, North Korea kicks off the invasion of South Korea in June of 1950. Almost immediately, the United States, President Truman, and the United Nations say, we're going to come to your defense. We're going to get troops in there. We're going to help hold the line and repel the North Korean attackers. Now, they start doing this, and there are U.S. troops in the area. There's United Nations troops within close range, a lot stationed in Japan. They get onto the Korean Peninsula, 
And remember, Korea is, is a peninsula. So North Korea shares a border with China. North Korea shares a border, the northern border with China, north and west. East and west are water, and their southern border is South Korea. South Korea has one border. It's with North Korea, and the other three sides are ocean. So American United Nations forces land on the peninsula in, in June and start fighting to try to push back the North Korean attackers. Now, the United States military at this point, which makes up a good number of the UN forces, there's going to be a lot of countries involved, but the United States is going to make up the bulk of the forces throughout the war. And because we're talking about an American here in Melvin Brown, I'm probably going to end up using the term Americans more often than, than UN soldiers. But it's interesting how quickly we can fall out of practice. For a country that is so finely tuned at conducting warfare by 1945, you know, in a matter of months, you know, the threats are gone. The Japanese empire is dissolved. Hitler's dead. The German, the Nazi Germany is no more. Who are we going to fight? Now, there were arguments about needing to fight the Soviet Union right at the end of the Second World War. And who knows what that would have turned into. But the clear and present danger wasn't there, maybe is the way to put it. Or we didn't want to see it. We just, look, we just come out on the, the, the right end of this devastating conflict. Let's start to stand down. We don't need the size military that we had. We can maybe slow on innovation a little bit. You know, you have to have these things, have to have the state-of-the-art tanks for combat, have to have the, the leading-edge torpedoes. But, you know, 1946, all of a sudden, it's, it's peacetime. Maybe that money can be spent elsewhere. And the U.S. military very quickly um, deteriorates. Not just that it's five years older and the equipment is five years older, but we send a lot of our soldiers home, as would be expected at the end of a war. And there's a lot of experience that goes with, with those soldiers. So when war kicks off in 1950, we have a solid force, but it's surprisingly less effective than it was just five years prior. And that's going to take a little bit of time. And it's not just the training of the soldiers. It's the logistics systems. It's, it's the planning processes. It's the equipment. It's everything is going to need a little time to kind of catch up to speed. To, to get back into the war fighting mentality. So as American and UN forces are landing on the peninsula and the North Korean forces are continuing to push south, there's an issue. And the issue is if we don't get there fast enough, we're going to be landing on enemy beaches. Now that's a whole different fight. You know, we're talking about the landings on Iwo Jima, you know, the, the landings in Normandy. Those are landing on hostile beaches. You don't want to do that. You want to get there before the beach turns hostile. You want to get there while there's still a friendly force there that you're reinforcing. It's a whole different fight. Well, the United Nations and American forces accomplished that by getting troops there in June and July of 1950. But this force that isn't quite in peak warfighting shape for a lot of reasons starts to take it on the nose against this rushing North Korean force. And they get pushed back. And they get pushed back further and further and further. And, and by the end of summer, early fall, I think it's in August, early August, they're pushed back to an area that would come to be known as the Pusan perimeter. It's the port of Pusan um, in the southern area, I believe southeast uh, portion of South Korea. And it's a 
it's a very important port city. So it's an easy entrance and exit area by sea for South Korea. But there's about a 140-mile perimeter around Pusan that UN forces, and at this point, it's not just UN forces. It's for the bulk of the battle of Pusan perimeter, it ends up being about a 50-50 split between um, Republic of Korea forces, ROK forces, South Korean military, and United Nations forces. They dig in along this perimeter, and they just have to hold the line. We've talked quite a few times about how just how critical that it works out well here, but the beachhead is. You have to have that way to bring in resupplies. You have to have that way to bring in reinforcements and to get your wounded out. You know, in if we look at the the Western Front or the you know the assault on the Atlantic Wall in, in Western Europe during World War II, it was holding the beachhead at Normandy and and you know Utah and Omaha. Sort we had to hold that beach. That was our lifeline. In the Vietnam War, we've talked about how a lot of times it's the helicopter landing zone. It's just making sure there's a place nearby that you can get in and out as needed, even if it's contested. Pusan is that area in South Korea. We didn't know it. We didn't go into Korea saying um, the goal is to hold this perimeter. The goal is to push the North Koreans back, but we weren't. We're falling back to this perimeter, digging in along a 140-mile front and, and fighting for our lives, fighting for the existence of South Korea if you will. this It's not going to take much for the North Korean army to continue to punch through. And we're talking about a different war at that point. Now, there's plans in the process to conduct an amphibious assault around the side of this front, this trapped American force, to an area called Incheon. That's going to happen in mid-September of 1950. So, now, the troops in the front line don't know that, but the planners know that. And the idea is going to be close to, we just got to hold on till mid-September, and then we can get this force around the side. But nonetheless, it's going to be brutal back and forth fighting through August and into September as the North Koreans try to punch through the lines. The UN and Republic of Korea soldiers hang on for their lives. Now, something that's interesting with the Battle of the Pusan Perimeter is as the North Korean forces continue to fight, they're running low on supplies because their their supply chain is long. And as they get further into South Korea, they now have to bypass, they have to go through more and more enemy terrain or previously held enemy terrain. The population is not going to be very hospitable to resupply their guys in the front line. They have no, you know, they have an Air Force, they have a Navy. They're not going to be material in this fight. The United Nations and South Korea are going to own the skies and we're going to own the sea. And we've got this port where we're getting stronger. So every day that goes by is a win for the UN forces and for South Korea. North Korea needs to win this war fast. And the longer that that perimeter is held at Pusan is every day is one more tank. Every day is another battalion of infantry. Every day is one less day of food for the North Korean soldiers. The days matter. And that's, what's, that's what the fighting is on the Pusan perimeter. Hold at all costs. It's during this battle that Private First Class Melvin Brown and his unit are tasked with taking Hill 755. It's an area known as the Walled City. Um, I believe it's pronounced Quezon, which is confusing because we also have you know the incredible battle of Quezon in the Vietnam War, spelled differently, K-A-S-A-N. Um, but I had a hard time finding the correct pronunciation, but it's a smaller battle within the larger battle of the Pusan perimeter. 
Brown and his men take this hill, Hill 755. Once they get, once they secure the hill, they're preparing for an enemy counterattack. It's been happening up and down these lines. And to back up a minute, this is September 4th of 1950. So big picture of the war, we are 11 days away from the landings at Inchon that will completely change the dynamic of this conflict. But nobody knows that. Brown doesn't know that. As they're digging in for this counterattack, that comes very, very quickly. Brown moves on top of a wall. The wall is going to allow him to fire down into the advancing enemy soldiers. And it's going to be a little barrier. The enemy is going to have to climb this wall to get to him. But it does push him out forward a little bit, a little bit ahead of friendly lines. It's kind of a jagged line. It's not, again, a lot of these cases, we're not talking about like a trench system. That's a very clear, defined line. Um, So he's a little bit forward. As the attacking uh, North Korean soldiers come into their position, and at this point, um, later in the conflict, we're going to see a lot of Chinese soldiers um, fighting right alongside or independent of North Korean soldiers. At this point, it's, it's almost exclusively North Korean soldiers, and that's who Brown is facing. He lays down lethal small arms fire into these attacking soldiers, knocking down quite a few. And as they get closer, based off of where he sits, he's able to start lobbing grenades down into these bunches of North Koreans that are attacking his position. It's a great setup to do that. And he's wreaking havoc in the North Korean lines, just blowing holes through these soldiers that are relatively bunched up coming through. One of the tactics that the North Koreans would would um, would use during this time was they were trying to punch holes through the line and then reinforce as needed. And a lot of times that meant a full frontal assault. So there was strategy. I don't mean to say there wasn't any strategy, but there was some brute force involved. And that is the group that Brown is looking down upon dropping grenades as they advance. So in turn, because they're a little bunched up, as he drops these grenades, he's, he's having pretty serious effect. Now, he's far enough out there to where his guys are bringing grenades up to him to utilize. He has a better use for him. He's getting more effects um, using these. So his guys are bringing him up. He's leaving his position under fire, gets wounded, back up at the hill, and eventually starts to run low on ammunition and throws his last grenade. So Brown watches as these enemy soldiers have not stopped. They're continuing to assault in deadly fight, and they're within yards of his position. Rather than retreat, rather than move back to friendly lines, Brown picks up something called an E-tool. E stands for entrenching. It's a folding shovel that's short, you know, two to three feet long, wooden with a metal head. The head folds out. It's about the size of a dinner plate, no more. And he picks up the entrenching tool and waits for North Korean soldiers to get so close that they're poking their head over the wall. When they do that, they're met with Brown and his shovel. He eliminates 10 to 12 enemy soldiers in this manner in vicious hand-to-hand combat. Before the battle eventually overtakes his position, he is declared missing at the age of 19. And shortly thereafter, formally declared being killed in action on 4 or 5 September of 1950. Brown's men 
watched him hold the line. They watched him repel enemy attackers with a shovel. And it provided this motivation for these guys to hold on. And hold on, they did. They held the line, held their portion of the line, the Pusan perimeter. And 10 days later, UN forces would land around the backside of the North Korean army at, at, at Inchon and change the dynamic of the war and really provide the ability for the, the trapped American UN and Korean soldiers at Pusan to break out and start to liberate parts of South Korea that had recently been taken. Now, for his heroic action holding the line, Private First Class Melvin Brown would be awarded posthumously the Medal of Honor. President Truman would present that to his family just a few months after he was formally declared dead in, I believe he was presented in January of 1951. But heck of a story for a young guy, 19, just holding the line in a time where Americans, UN soldiers, and Korean soldiers are called upon to hold at all costs. Brown took that to heart and held it with small arms, grenades, and when needed, his shovel. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.